Hello, this is Jane Sigford bringing you Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's guest is Dr. Bernadia Johnson, a retired superintendent from the Minneapolis Public Schools, who is currently a professor at Minnesota State University, Mankato. It will become apparent why the self-attributed moniker of Uniquely Bernadia is an apt description. As an African-American female and as a person who has lived and worked in the South and the North, Bernadia has unique insights into the role of superintendent as a female and as an African-American. She came to education through a different path and completed some of her studies in an alternative program. We will hear about some of the insights she has achieved when she completed the research for her dissertation, which was entitled African-American Female Superintendents, Resilient School Leaders, which was earned at the University of Minnesota and is available online. Again, several themes have emerged from our conversation. One, she talked about the constant scrutiny and criticism that she was under as a superintendent of schools in a major city. Another was she discussed the need for support systems such as faith, family, and kitchen cabinets to maintain resiliency in this difficult role. She stressed the need for balance in one's life because the demands of a superintendency can easily slide into a position that demands a 24-7 presence at meetings, community events, administrative tasks, and other professional responsibilities. She related stories of situations where race, more than competency, became the issue. She, like most of the other podcast interviewees, stressed the importance of relationships, and she added an additional emphasis on the need for strong community involvement and relationships as crucial to being a successful school leader. Let's hear from Bernadia herself. My career path was not a traditional one. I attended Alabama A&M University, a historically black college, and majored in speech therapy, then came to Minnesota to live with my grandparents, decided I would go to the University of Minnesota to get a master's in speech, but in the meantime, started to work for First Bank, which is now called U.S. Bank, and became a teller, then a teller supervisor, and at that time, I was thinking, what do you really want to do when you grow up? And I kept getting advanced throughout the first bank. At some point, I decided it really wasn't what I wanted to do. For a number of reasons, it kept me away from my family month in and year in. I couldn't see how I could show my passion and my original interest in education. So I decided to go through an alternative licensure program called the Collaborative Urban Educator Program at the University of St. Thomas, and it was a collaboration between Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Minneapolis Public Schools and St. Paul Public Schools, and the University of St. Thomas. So I did that program. Upon completion, I was assigned to a school in St. Paul, Highwood Hills, on the east side, and I was there. It was an alternative licensure program in Minneapolis, the interns were placed in the classroom with the teacher in St. Paul. I was down the hall from my teacher. So, for example, so my teacher would be on the five-yard line and I would be on the 50. That's how far in terms of distance. I struggled through trying to be the best I could for my students. 
uh, went to classes at, at night at St. Thomas and prepped with other teachers to help me be the best teacher I could be. But I also always felt that in others' eyes, I had done something untoward in terms of getting into the classroom. And that because I hadn't gone through a typical educational program, that I really wasn't worthy to be a teacher. That's the feeling you got from other teachers? Other teachers, because I couldn't say that I went to the University of Minnesota, St. Thomas, and got my undergrad degree. So that came with a set of assumptions, ways of being that kept my guard up, but also cast resentment from the teachers. I remember distinctly being in the media center. Teachers were passing out some paperwork that the principal had given them for a discussion we were going to have. I reached my hand up to get the paper, and the white teacher said to me, no, this is not for you, it's not for EAs. Just because I was black, not that she asked, because I was black female, she basically said, this paper is not for you. And I said, well, I am a teacher. And she gave it to me with this puzzled look on her face. I felt like... She assumed you were an educationalist. Because I was black. Because the school had all white teachers. And they ever had diversity. So she assumed that about me. And so there were, I mean, those assumptions were there. And you had parents who had been in that community. The school is right down McKnight, close to 3M. So we had some 3M parents there who had their kids there. You had some wealthy. And you had a an area close to it that was sort of a a project, but teachers lived there too. So there was kind of a mixed income setting. But the majority of the students we had in that class were all white. It was interesting to kind of maneuver and to prove yourself with not only the students, I don't think the students cared less, but the parents and the other teachers, because the teachers talked to the parents, the parents talked to the principal, so everybody's kind of concerned. But I ended up leaving that position. Did things change over that time? Well, another black teacher came, and so we would make jokes because we would stand in the hall to talk to each other. We would say stuff like, uh-oh, we better be careful because people may think we're starting a gang, and we have to separate because we, we were cognizant of the fact being one along was one thing, but being two along, so then you started to get strength in numbers. You started to get more people there that folks were, had a sense of fear. I don't know, fear about how to interact with us, how to think of us as teachers. As the years went on, my other black friend and I started to see absolutely a turn in the demeanor and the thinking of the, of the staff, the parents. They started to see us as excellent teachers, teachers who understood what needed to happen for kids. They also saw a lot of tough love. So I had a couple of students in my classroom. Um, both their dads were doctors. One had a dad doctor and the mother was a doctor. They were really smart, but they just wanted to do enough to get by. And I remember distinctly telling their parents they need to participate in a math club or something. And they didn't want to do it. And I said, well, here's what you get to understand. I'm telling the two kids. You get to choose your underwear. Your parents get to make choices about your education. So I called their parents up and told their parents that I felt like it would really challenge them more. They did it. And they won. And they loved it. It showed me 
how important it is that that partnership exists between the parent and the teacher and the students, but also how important it is that we give all kids, even ones that are smart, opportunities to push their, their limits. So after that, I got an intern assistant principal job down at Saturn Riverfront Academy with Nancy Katz-Merrick. So I was there for a year as an intern, the next year as an AP, and then Carol Johnson from Minneapolis called me up to recruit me to come over to be a principal at one of her elementary schools in North Minneapolis. This was at the time Pat Harvey had come and joined the staff. Carmen had just left. I had said that I would never leave St. Paul because Carmen set up the program to support National Board Teacher Certification. So I, I did that as a teacher with the, with the support of the superintendent. And then I, I went to became an AP. And it was interesting in that, you know, you start to see politics early. Same thing, you know, it was a building. We were in the building. There used to be an old YWCA building. And I remember this this parent couple were really upset with me about something. And the only reason I remember is because they said they were going to call Jesse Ventura on me. Like the governor. Why would they call Jesse? Because they said I gave them an answer. I was a smart ass. And, and I smiled when I talked. I smile to everybody when I'm talking to them. They took that to be disrespectful. I'm like... I smile at everybody, but they called, they called the governor. Because everybody thought, oh, Jess is a governor, he's a normal person. And the governor's office did call me. And that's, I think that's the first time I'm like, dang, the politics and all this stuff is just real. When they called you, what did they say? That uh, they had gotten a complaint from a parent, and they asked me about what happened, and I explained to them, that was it. I never talked to the governor. It may have been a chief of staff or somebody in his office, but it never went anywhere. But it just made me start to think more about how I deliver information and how I think about information. Carol recruited me to Minneapolis to be a principal in the lowest form performing elementary school in the state and in Minneapolis. And I remember some of the staff loved the principal and thought the black teachers and thought the white teachers were trying to push her out. I went over and I had my two children with me. A social superintendent introduced me and all the like, all the black stuff got up and ran out. I remember leaving that night, and my kids said, "Mom, don't go there. They don't want me there." And that's one of the first lessons I taught my children. I said, "They don't know me. They're used to this certain person who's no longer there. I've been hired to replace her, and so I don't want you guys to be afraid of what could happen to me, because I'm uniquely Bernadia, and I'm sure they're going to love me and respect me like they they did her." But I'm not afraid. Why did the black teachers leave? Well, they felt like the white teachers were all on the black teacher. They thought that they were disrespectful, and every time anything would happen, the white teachers would call down to Carol's office and complain. I don't know what that complaint was, but I do know that I had to deal with some of those white teachers myself. One teacher I remember meeting with her, and she was sitting down, and I had just looked at filling some drawers that the other principal left. And I was pulling it back. There was a piece of paper stuck in it, and I pulled it out. And the teacher was coming to see me. It was a teacher who had written his note to the principal saying, yes, I agree, I'm a racist. I know that I don't like black people and blah, 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 and I'm going to try to do better, blah, blah. So she comes to meet with me, and she had done some crazy stuff. And I, you know, I said, you know, let's talk about what happened. And then that's kind of process and problem solve what happened and how we could do it differently. And she was kind of like snitted with me. 
And I said, and yes, I know you are a professed racist. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, I have this letter here you wrote. And my AP, my black AP was in there. What's, what Principal Johnson means, I said, no, I just told her I have a letter that I found. And, and so it was interesting. And that was my first time of understanding that for some white people, you can't talk straight to them. You have to sugarcoat it or you have to find some way of changing the vernacular to make them feel, quote, safe. That lesson went with me all throughout Minneapolis. It's not to try to do it with black people, too, but I think, you know, a black person talking to a black person could probably do some things that a black person, a white person can't do to a black person. I left there and went to Memphis City Schools with Carol Johnson. She wanted me to be an associate soup. I got down there at associate soup for Area 3. Keep in mind, Memphis City Schools is like the size of all of Hennepin County. Just huge. 112 elementary, 30 high, 30 middle schools, 9 Korean tech. Just huge. And I went with Carol. And I remember like struggling, like, should I go, should I not? Trying to have the right conversations. And I remember telling my daughter, my son, Carol Johnson has given me an opportunity. And my daughter said, let's be clear, Carol has given you an opportunity. She hasn't given me one. Because my daughter's like, she, she does not, she just doesn't have that kind of, somebody's on a pestle or somebody's different. So I went to Memphis, and first five days, I was the social soup. Carol had been looking for a deputy superintendent, couldn't find anybody. So she asked me, would I do it? And I said, I will do it. I don't know the experience. I don't know the role. And she said, but you have good judgment. You have good common sense. And you understand schools. I said, in that case, yes. And I said, but you have to understand that I still am going to need you to teach me and coach me and help me along the way. So I, then I became a deputy superintendent. So what's the difference between that role and the role that you were hired? The role I was hired for, I supervised principals. I worked on school improvement with principals. So that's like an associate superintendent job. The deputy job is right below the, the superintendent. It means... I was responsible for all the day operations of the schools, and the social superintendents reported to me as a deputy. My grandparents followed me down there, and my husband wanted to move down there, but it's not so easy for the spouse of a superintendent, a deputy superintendent, to get a job in the same district. And so my grandma was like, you're never here. It's hard to get in touch with you. We're going to move back to Minnesota. And so they moved back, and they left me there for a couple of months, and then I finally told Carol I was leaving, too. So you were there just a couple of years? Yeah. I came back to chief academic officer in Minneapolis. Then I became deputy superintendent. And you were there for three years? Probably three or four years before I became superintendent, yeah. But how long were you superintendent? Five. And then from there, you technically retired, but you are a faculty member at Mankato. Right. In 2014, I left the district. I actually resigned as of January 15, 2015. And I went to Mexico for a month and just kind of got my mind together. And I came back, and I'm like, I'm like, what am I going to do? My husband likes photography. He likes playing in a big band. I decided I was over there kind of coaching some principals with Melissa and Candace, and they announced at one of the coaches' meetings there was a position open. 
and if any of us want to apply. And so I did apply in Ghana. In Bernadia's research, she examined the role of black educational leaders and teachers. An ongoing issue for American education has been and is the ability to attract and retain teachers of color. Bernadia talks about the need to have a cadre of educators from which we can develop administrators and leaders of color. Several events in history have worked against this. Historically, pre-Brown B. Board of Education, black students went to black schools and were taught by black teachers in supposed separate but equal settings. In 1954, when Brown v. Board of Education was passed, when schools were integrated theoretically, white teachers could now teach black students, but black teachers were not hired to teach white students. What that meant was that many dedicated, committed black teachers were without jobs, and some of the white teachers, not usually the most skilled, were sent to teach in black schools, which led to a lesser education for many. Another time when black teachers were hired was during wartime when men were off fighting. However, when the men returned, once again the black teachers were let go. These are some of the concerns that Bernadia talks about. What I found in my observation is there's sort of a pecking order, or a hierarchy, so to speak, of who is assumed qualified or good for the superintendency. And I think it starts with a white male, then male, white female, then female of color. And I think that's unfortunate, and I, as with everything, the issues that women deal with have no color attached to them. Throughout history in the system, even back when Brown B. Vord, or when the army broke out, men went to the army and then women became teachers then who gets to teach, right? And so when the men come back, the teachers lose their jobs. And it's no different than, like, after the Brown B. Vord, you start to see a lot of black teachers lose their jobs because black teachers couldn't teach white kids, but they could teach black kids, and white teachers could teach both. So the pool for jobs became very limited for black women. Why is that? So is it just because of the racial component you know, I don't want my white kids with black teachers. Is that the reason? Do you feel like black teachers don't have the qualities, the qualification? Which is really strange now that people coming out with all this research on having black educators, right? And what we need. The fact of the matter is you're not going to be able to attract very diverse school demographic, whether it's teachers, EAs, business partners, or leaders, if you don't have black people already in your upper echelon. It's just not going to be as easy because just like with everything else, I believe as a superintendent of Minneapolis, even though my background was totally different than how I was brought up, I felt like there were some ways I could understand what students were experiencing because of my own family. When it comes down to it, I always think about interest convergence. Are the people with me because I have found something that they also support? that they like, or is it really because of who I am and what I stand for? I always found it hard being a superintendent of Minneapolis or challenging when everybody knew the black, brown, and native kids were failing. And if you said one thing about it, my white teachers would be insulted. Their feelings would get hurt. And I'm like, what the hell? But it's true. It's, it's the data. To quote from Bernadia's dissertation, 
There is no long-term trend information on the demographics, leadership characteristics, and experiences of African-American female superintendents. Although, quote, there's a small but growing knowledge base on women in educational administration, there is a paucity of research available on blacks in the superintendency and even less on black women in the superintendency, which is a quote from Alston. So the primary purpose of her study was to ask the six African-American female superintendents in the K-12 public school systems to help identify what makes them resilient and enables them to face the adversity inherent in their leadership. There are many rich discussions contained in Bernadia's dissertation, but one of them was that the superintendents who were in that study found that their leadership was questioned, quote, based on internal and external notions about who is a leader and leadership characteristics. Several superintendents shared experiences about working hard to earn respect from peers and having not only a place at the table, but also having their voices heard. The study participants who grew up in the South had a clear view of how they thought about race and gender. For the women who are currently working in the South, it is clear that the history of black women and their treatment in the South seems to have changed little. Throughout the rest of the podcast, I will share other ideas about what contributed to the resilience of these women. Bernadia, like the rest of us, is a product of her life experiences. In a previous podcast of Patty Phillips, she quoted Brene Brown, who said, Who we are is how we lead. Some of Bernadia's experiences have led her to understand how culture is conveyed in our use of language. Think about my husband in the hospital. These nurses come in like, Reggie, would you like to do stuff? And I'm like, is it important for his recovery? And they said, yes. I said, so why do you ask would he like to? You say, come on, Reggie, take your medicine. So there's a black nurse came in. She's like, Reggie, you haven't eaten. We're eating today. You know, so it's not all hesitancy and, you know, lack of strength behind the comments you make. And my daughter, point in case, when she was in kindergarten, I got a call from the teacher because the teacher said my daughter refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm like, I never told her not to, so I don't know where it came from. And so when she came home, I'm like, and Brianna's like, I just didn't want to. And that was her reason. And if Brianna didn't want to do it, she would do it. And I told the teacher, I said, why, why don't you say to Brianna like I do? Brianna, you have, you have four outfits to choose today from. You don't have all this. Pick one, and that's it, or I'll pick it for you. So you give Brianna a choice. You said, Brianna, I would like it. And Brianna said, I don't care if she likes it. It's kindergarten. She said she would like it. She didn't tell me to do it. One of her greatest learnings as a superintendent was to remember to be herself. Being aware of the language she used and how she communicated was a large part of that. I would say one of my greatest learnings was to continue to be myself. And I know that's really hard to explain, but what was interesting to me is whenever I found myself trying to fit some other mold or fit something somebody else wanted me to be, that's when I became more stressed. So one of the things I tried to do is how do I remain who I am and how do I still be the superintendent that's needed for Minneapolis, right? I decided that it was more important for me to be myself. I just decided that if I'm talking about the issues and I'm not attacking people. Now, I happen to work with a bunch of people. If I just said the sky is blue, and it was say, oh, she said it was blue and it hurt my feelings. And I had a bunch of people who... Anything I said, they would turn around as an attack on themselves. 
I had to sign and finally tell myself, that's not my problem, that's theirs. I remember telling Steve Brandt once, he said, why can't Minneapolis public schools over north do as well as Harvest and Kip and other schools? I believe that some of my staff may not believe in their own individual capacity to make things better. A couple that would not believe in the capacity of the students, it creates a, a real challenge. The union president contacted me after it was aired because he did a video of it too and said that I said that teachers, I said, first of all, I didn't use the word teachers. In order to be a leader and a good superintendent, you have to make changes. Larry Cuban and David Tyak, in their book, Tinkering Toward Utopia, A Century of Public School Reform, posited that the grammar of schooling has remained basically stable for over a century. This grammar consists of the shape and expectations of the students and teachers in the classroom, the discrete courses of learning, age-graded schools, expectations of how teachers do their work, and so on. We continue to assume this grammar of schooling is what schooling is for the future. But sometimes as a superintendent, you have to disrupt that grammar. It's when you disrupt these kind of things through the schedule or, or librarian I had who refused to let kids at Hall School get books at the library because they would lose them. And I'm like, have you set up a system? Have you shown kids how to love books and the importance of them? So I got her a mentor and she set up this, this system was really good. Every book she got put out, she got back. And she said, see, I did this. And I said, I know, you showed me. It's like she did it and worked so hard at it to prove to me that she could do it. I said, I never thought you couldn't do it. You just wouldn't. And my thing, if a book is lost somewhere and another child picks it up and reads it, hallelujah. Upon reflection, another disruption she wishes she had made was more community involvement and changing certain practices with conferences with parents in Minneapolis. I could have done a much better job of is getting families involved more. Well, I mean, I let them off the hook. I think I thought about the parents in some of the communities we were serving and the parents having to have two jobs, not being able to come to events and stuff. And so sometimes I may not have done as much engagement as I needed to do. I would think about my personal experience. My mom was a teacher, second grade teacher, and my mom and dad were divorced. And so sometimes she had to play at the church, and sometimes she she did the school musical and that kind of stuff. I remember I had a concert, and I was first chair. She didn't make my concert. And I never was angry with her about it. I always thought, well, this is what happens when you're a single parent. You have so much going on. And I felt like... We could have found other ways of working around that. For school conferences, some of my schools had conferences during the day, starting at 8 in the morning. If you're a parent who works during the day, when do you get to go to conferences? And they didn't have any night ones. And I'm just, how do you let that stuff continue? If you say you want to hear from parents, you want parents to be involved, and yet you set up systems that create inabilities for them to attend. That kind of thing, this book. As a professor, she has seen that higher ed is also stuck and somewhat disconnected from the day-to-day -day realities of our pre-K-12 system. 
Her experience as superintendent and teacher is a plus in offering other viewpoints and she feels committed to staying connected so that she can provide richer insights for her college students. I've learned and how important the classroom experience at the university is designed. Intellectually, I knew that, but I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about, fortunately, I have some people take the class because I used to be superintendent. I've had people like one guy in one class came in and said, I wasn't going to take this class. And I said, oh. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, because you're teaching it. Because you tried to close North High and I went to North High. It brings up interesting dynamics. The one thing I've missed, I took for granted and didn't know it didn't exist, is that there's no support staff when you're in university. You don't have an administrative assistant. You have one that you share with the other five, seven, eight people. And I think the other thing is uh, trying to adjust and trying to figure out how to still have humanity for students. Like, we, we say we don't want people to miss one class. And I get that. But if something comes up and you convince me that it's really important and you're going to make up your work, I'm okay with that. And I think that the university system, sometimes their heads are stuck in the sand. There's no real reality to what's going on in K-12 or in districts, that they keep doing the work they're doing on, like, autopilot and until they're pushed or something happens. I think it's, it's really been interesting. I think for, for the people on the faculty who are now interacting with people who've led large organizations, that hasn't been their thing, you know. There's sometimes an awe... We were sitting meeting, somebody would come up with something, and I'll say, okay, so that won't work, so what about this? We've had more opportunities for problem-solving, interaction with families and things that they don't have to deal with. So they only deal with their, their craft. I still can't let go. So I'm still on the board. I'm still <laughs> I, I did quit TPT. I'm on the library board. I'm on Minnesota Combat Board. Still on a lot of boards. So it just takes a lot of my time. I'm probably going to have to stop all that, but I felt like I needed to stay anchored somewhat in K-12 so that if I want to do research on K-12, that I have some ability to connect with people around the world. I asked her what characteristics future leaders need to have. I think they have to have personal characteristics of a high moral compass because all the stuff that I see courage, innovators, and be able to kind of pick apart the status quo. But they also have to be confident in that, because everybody's replacing somebody, that you don't go in and change something just to change it. They have to be listeners, strong listeners and observers of what's happening and where their unique leadership style will move the organization to the next level. I also believe that and I felt this for myself as well. Their main job is to mine for talent. You're out there, you, you see somebody and you're impressed with them, you try to figure out how to always have a cache of people that you could tap into to do the work. They have to be visible. I went everywhere, and I probably overdid it, but I, people want to know the superintendent. They want to know what you like and think. Because you're the leader, you're making all these decisions. But I had to cut my stuff down. I was out every night. And I told my administrative assistant, I said, I'll do two nights a week. I can't 
stay out late. I mean, because you, you get so tired. So you do the athletics on the weekend. You go to community meetings. You go to Itasca at 7.30 in the morning. The glass is so clean, I walked right into the glass and cut my lip. Just because you're so tired, in order to survive, they have to have some kind of kitchen cabinet, some kind of group of people that they can rely on to have, give sage advice, to push them and not let them just go with what's easy and, and not challenging. In your opinion, are the needs different for women and men leaders? This is an interesting thing. I think women leaders, of what I've read and what I've seen, women leaders uh, for sure have to find two complementary staff. So women may not be up to speed on all the the law, the the financial stuff. So you got to make sure you have a top-notch financial person there. But then if you're a man and you have come from a different background, you must have an academician on your step. So needs are different. Some of them are stereotypical needs. And some of them, people have to be vulnerable and say, look, this is not my, this is not where I'm best, but I would need somebody to do this. And you have to make sure you mind for that talent and use those people in that way. Because I've seen it happen both ways, you know. The fact of the matter is, the women leaders that I've been around, and I think it depends, because some days I felt like I needed to be tougher than I was. I can't say that I ever disrespected anybody or went too far with that. I've seen some men do that, and I'm thinking, damn. I think women by nature are more collaborative. I do believe women lead differently. They lead this may slow them down sometimes. I think they want to have a, a lot of input, a lot of understanding, so when you make a decision, you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you can explain it all along the way. And I see the men, it's like, we're doing this. I don't have to tell you why, because I'm the leader. And that's an education in other areas, too, just like, we're doing this. And sometimes I've been jealous of that, because you can ask and ask and ask, and at some point... Even when people have the same information you have, it's hard for people sometimes to say, okay, I want to do this or I don't want to do that. And the fact of the matter is that the the woman leader feels compelled and feels pressured, I think, to make sure they do all that. I think men just kind of like, mm. And I always felt like I had to hear from people myself, not from somebody telling somebody to tell me. I want to hear from myself so I could kind of reflect back. Is this what I heard? Is this what you're thinking? That type of thing. And then I can say, whereas I appreciate this input, I can tell you that it's, it's a little similar to what we thought about, but here, here's what we found as a challenge to implement it that way. So you kind of give people, you know, give them something like, yeah, this is, you know, this is not stupid. This is just the way it is. I think women give up a lot, too, and sacrifice. The men go to work. The wife's going to be home and made to dinner, pick the kids up from daycare, done the chores and done all that stuff. I think that unleveled burden or responsibility that women carry with them is, the, you know, the mothers. But I also know that uh, it's not that men can't do it. Like, what I get and get angry about is, like, if I'm angry about something or I'm asking questions, that's when you get back to this angry black woman stuff. Mm -hmm. Because the way I'm wording it is not in a 
soft, pillowy, charming language, then the person thinks they're being attacked or whatever the case may be because we're not used to having direct conversation. Previous segment, you heard echoes from the podcast with Patty Phillips, who is retired superintendent from North St. Paul Maplewood Oakdale, who also described the collaborative style of women leaders. Both Patty and Bernadia talked about decision-making as an extensive information-gathering process so that concerned parties have a lot of data before them so that they can understand the issues and decisions. Both women talked about the challenge of being firm and being so-called tough. That even takes on a racial component for Bernadia in her constant awareness of how to say things and communicate ideas. Other African-American women in her study had similar experiences. Bernadia's comments about needing direct language and not having to use pillowy or charmin language is a dark shadow lurking behind the perception that when a black woman or black women speak forcefully or directly, they are often perceived as angry. In fact, there is a Jim Crow term, sapphires, that referred to black women as rude, loud, malicious, stubborn, and overbearing, which has led to today's meme of the angry black woman. Language and communication styles are very culturally laden. Dealing with cultural biases is exhausting, which is why Bernadia decided to study the traits of resilience that some black women superintendents have learned as coping strategies. Plus, she continues to share strategies that she has developed personally. When I started talking to people, there were things that I saw that they all did that was in common, and faith was so important to them. Faith and family, and going to church, doing whatever they could, and the things that they were challenged by, because a couple of them got divorced, trying to maintain a family and do the work. It was hard. The other learners were more about who, who do we have to mentor us and support us uh, in these jobs, which came up as a challenge for people. And I think board-wise, the black women seemed to feel like they were having more challenges with black board, female black board members. And that happened to me and Carol. One of the board members got mad, thought Carol not dressed too well. She was a secretary somewhere, so she wanted to make sure she was always checking out salary. So there's always seems to be these kind of barriers that are real, that some people are not aware of, like, you know, how much jewelry you got on, what kind of car you're driving. Some of that stuff came from the black board members. And then you, you start to see that, for me, it always bothered me. And I don't want to be called Dr. Johnson, but I would be in a situation where, like I was in Memphis, and two men walked in before me, and then I came in. We were coming for a conference. Oh, there's Dr. Spots. There's Dr. Wright. And, oh, look, there's Bernadia. So afterwards, I couldn't wait to go up to him, and I said, if you're going to call all the other doctors doctors, you should refer to me as doctor, too. You call them by their first name, then I'm okay with Bernadia. But to me, I could see, you know, that was intentional. The thing that I've had to find that's been challenging for me is I call it out every time I see it. At first, I didn't. I would just kind of swallow it. I had a board member come up to me when I first became superintendent and said, I said, hi, well, glad we're getting a chance to meet. Hi, my name is blah, 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 and I heard you are vindictive. I said, wow, I've never heard that. And this is really catching me off guard and by surprise. I would like to ask you to let me think about that 
and check in with some other people and see if I'm missing something, because it could be that I'm missing something. And he said, okay. I came back to him. I said, well, I've talked to a few people, and people say, you know, if I'm holding people accountable, and many opposite like being accountable, that's not being vindictive. And by the way, I reject your characterization of me. I'm not vindictive. One of the things I found out in my dissertation work with African-American females, you have to be twice as prepared as they are, and you have to be twice as ready, so you have to be a good communicator. Communicating complex issues is really important. If you're a person of faith, not letting that go. Do whatever you need to keep that faith going because you'll need that for strength. And surround yourself with other leaders. They can be teachers, superintendents, or in the business world, just surround yourself with other female leaders who can be ready to, when you're thinking about leading this job, make sure you're clear about your own educational philosophy, about what you believe. Because if you don't believe, if you're not clear about what you believe, you will be erratic. You will be uh, cut off all the time because you can't, you don't have a solid foundation. And without a solid foundation of what you believe, and what you're capable of doing, and a willingness to be vulnerable, and find someone that matches and complements what you're capable of doing, then you'll be fearless. What advice would you give to people who are considering being superintendents? Would you advise them to seek the position? I would. I would. I, I would advise it. I thought it was good for me when I did it. I'm not sure that I would go back. And I think that's a function of just my health and my husband's health and that type of thing. But I would say that don't go in there unless you're ready. And we're never ready for everything. We never are until it happens. If you have a solid core and you have a strong communication and you've listened to the community and been out among the community and identified some influencers that you could always go to, like some kind of kitchen cabinet, you have to set yourself up for success. You can't just wait for it to happen dynamically. And the, the relationship with the board chair is important. Now, I did something that I thought was interesting. My board picked me seven to two. So this is the selection process. The two board members called me and said, we're voting tonight, but I want you to know we will not be voting for you. And I said, okay. First of all, I respect that you called me. Can I ask why not? Well, we're not voting for you because we didn't like the process. I said, but it was your process. You guys voted on the process. That's fine, but, but that has nothing to be do with me. It has more to do with your process. I'd like to ask you a favor, and they said, oh, sure, what? I said, vote no. They said, what do you mean? We're going to abstain. I said, no. I would prefer you vote no. It's more honest. It's transparent. People don't go around thinking, like, well, why are you abstaining? If you vote no, that's clearer. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And I said, well, just know that I want you to vote no. They didn't? No, they abstained. What final words of wisdom would you like to share? There are superintendents or people and women in leadership should be well-read and know that they should be able to have some gravitas and stand up in a crowd. They should always be prepared because you never know when you have to give a speech. 
work hard on your education philosophy and knowing what your strengths are. Like doing a strength finder. Find out where you actually have your strengths. Some coursework will give you some of that and some won't. And so you may have to do it on your own. And that's not unusual. And that means find you a mentor. Someone right away who's served in a role who can help you. And then most leaders I know are willing to provide service and support to people. Would you advise the mentors to be same sex? I haven't cared. That's interesting. I think... There is something that men have to offer, because even in my dissertation, when I looked at women who were promoted, a lot of the black women talked about a white man in their life. John Time was mine. Just from my own experience, having a man can work. I think, I don't know how many men want women, but I think it's an opportunity to learn from people who have been successful in their leadership, showing you different ways of doing things. In another previous podcast that Views and Voice has hosted was about Neil Nickerson, professor of the University of Minnesota. He, too, was a white man who influenced Bernadia in supporting her to get through her dissertation work and to finish her doctorate at the University of Minnesota. This is Jane Sigford signing off. If you have comments for me, my email is jlsigford at comcast.net. We haven't heard from my favorite philosopher for a while, so I leave you with words of wisdom from Dr. Seuss. In the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. Thanks for listening.